Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from a skin disease. Now the Arameans, on, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went in and told his lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go then and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his skin disease? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the disease. Are not Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean. So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today, being July 3rd and tomorrow being the 4th of July, I, as I know many of you, are or have been thinking about some of my favorite American things. My personal favorite thing that comes to mind is America's pastime, baseball. From the time I was little on until today, baseball has been a deep love of mine. I played baseball until college, and now I just consider myself a very active watcher and fan. The game of baseball offers a lot of opportunities for stories, and today's text reminded me particularly of one from when I was playing high school baseball. 
Baseball players have an embarrassing knack and are famous for being superstitious. If you're around baseball very long, you will encounter some pretty strange preparation habits. In the words of Michael Scott, I wouldn't have considered myself superstitious, but I was a little stitious. There was, there was one day in a high school game, I believe my team was tied with the other team, let's say it was three to three. I was coming up to bat, and right before going to the on-deck circle, I noticed that my left shoe was a little bit untied. So, I propped my left foot up on the dugout step and I tied that shoe pretty tight. Then, I thought in my head, my right shoe is a little looser than my left shoe is now. I might as well untie it and retie it tight also. Typically, shoe tying is not something you would think much of. But in that at bat that I had right after, I came up with runners on base in a tie game, and I hit a double, and a run scored, and we took the lead. Yay. Who cares? Well, an inning or two later, my turn to hit was about to come up, and as I went to the dugout steps to go out to the on-deck circle once again, would you guess what I did? I retied my shoes on both my left and my right feet. Did either of those shoes need tying? No. But I remembered that I got a good hit last time and I had tied them. That next at bat, the worst thing that could have possibly happened, happened. I got another hit and a monster was created. These two hits had nothing to do with practice, or getting a good pitch, or being well-rested, or being well-stretched, or anything practical. They were solely because I retied both my shoes before those at-bats. So I thought. I then had to do it before every at-bat. And I did, for a while, until an at-bat happened where I was up first one inning, right after making a play in the field to end the inning, right after my coach had stopped me to ask me a question, right after I had trouble finding where my helmet was. And as warm-up pitches are coming to a close, I get to the dugout steps, do what I'm supposed to do, spend a minute or so unnecessarily untying and retying shoes. Then as I walk to the on-deck circle, to get my warm-up swings in, an actual important thing, the umpire looks over and says, batter up. With no time for warm-up swings because of my own silliness, I proceed to strike out on the next three pitches. <laughs> I learned in that moment that perhaps practicing baseball was more important to playing baseball than shoe-tying regimens were. As opposed to keeping things simple by prioritizing my fundamentals for the game I was actually playing, I had overcomplicated things and made myself worse. Where I had thought, surely it couldn't be as simple as practice baseball. Let me make this harder. I was wrong. I think that in a lot of ways, and in a lot of things, 
we're all often guilty of making things harder than they ought to be. I'm sure that Naaman understands and appreciates this feeling when we hear in our scripture one of his servants say to him, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean? Naaman wanting to untie and retie his shoes and do something harder than simply taking warm-up swings and doing something as simple as washing in the river. To understand how exactly Naaman got to this point, we should look back at the story as a whole. The beginning of chapter 5 starts by telling us that Naaman is the commander of the army of the king of Aram, a fancy way of saying that he was basically a Syrian general. It went on to say that he was in high favor with his master, the king of Aram, because Naaman commanded them to great victories. And who would one of the great victories for them be in the time of Second Kings? None other than victory over Israel. A powerful, larger-than-life Syrian hero who had never likely, who had very likely fought and won against Israelites. The story tells us also how the prominent figure, Naaman, suffered from a severe skin disease, which some scripture calls leprosy. In struggling with his skin disease, Naaman is approached by one of his wife's servants, who just so happened to be someone that Naaman would have acquired in one of his raids of Israel. The young girl encourages him to go find the Israelite prophet, who is Elijah, and he would cure him of his skin disease. So, if we're looking at the scoreboard, we have a young girl from a conquered land who is taken hostage, showing compassion to her mistress's husband, who likely killed people she knew, who happens to have skin disease something she certainly did not have to do, and is a gospel message in and of itself. Naaman takes this information to the king of Aram, either because Naaman believes her or because his skin disease is at a point where he is willing to try anything. The king of Aram endorses Naaman to go seek out this healing in Israel, and he sends him with a letter. When the king of Israel receives this letter, he clearly misunderstands its intent and thinks that the king of Aram, who has recently conquered him, is trying to embarrass him. And so he rips up his clothes and throws a bit of a temper tantrum under the assumption that Syria is trying to play war mind games. Eventually, Elisha calms the king down and tells him to send Naaman his way. Elisha then, through a messenger now, not even himself, tells this big, important general of the king of Aram to simply go wash in the Jordan River seven times, and his skin will be restored. So, a phenomenon to get to this point, period. 
Naaman has to receive a recommendation to go see Elisha from a vulnerable, conquered young girl and decides it's worth trying. The king of Aram then has to approve of this somewhat reckless maneuver. Then the king of Israel has to be subdued from a tantrum to allow this to get to Elisha, who then gives instruction to go wash seven times in the Jordan River, where we happen to know that Jesus the Messiah will one day wash. Naaman is expecting some big, elaborate miracle where he might have to do something flamboyant or difficult to receive the healing. He expects an abundance of attention, but instead a word through a messenger that you have come all this way and all you need to do is to go wash in a local river. Well, that struck a chord with Naaman's national pride, and he frustratedly points out that his own rivers, the Abana, the Farpar, and the other rivers of Damascus are better than the Jordan River. And to this, despite all that he's been through to get to this point, he is willing to give up and turn away in a rage. But as the story started with an unlikely hero of a young servant girl, another unlikely hero slides in here. Naaman's servants step up and point out to him, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? You were worried about untying and retying your shoes when all you need to do is take a practice swing. So Naaman, with no statement of faith, no repentance or anything else, goes down to the Jordan River, washes seven times, and his skin isn't just healed, but restored to that of a young boy. Skin is not just healed, but it is made new. He receives this grace not because of anything that he did, but because God gave it to him. Later in the chapter, Naaman will come to have faith in the God of Israel, but before that, by waters of the Jordan River, God will show that God's grace is poured out upon Naaman, a gesture that is simple, but also powerful, a moment that feels somewhat baptismal. God's grace kept simple can be as simple as us bringing our burdens to the river and knowing that the God that created us is sustaining us and redeeming us. It's bringing that which binds us and knowing that by the means of God's grace, we are being washed clean and made whole, no matter who we are or where we are from. We just keep our eyes to the simple things, not worrying about untying and retying our shoelaces, but in doing the work that God has called us to do. In a secular sense, Tomorrow we celebrate a collection of individuals that kept it simple as they declared independence. Whereas many people groups throughout time have deemed a manifesto or long series of theses to be the way to get a point across, on July 4th, 1776, the signers of the Declaration of Independence submitted 1,337 words. 
For reference to just how long that is, this sermon is about 2,300 words long. And I promise it's not that long. Um, they kept it short. But that does not mean those words weren't powerful. For within those 1,337 words, they found the beginning of a release from tyrannical rule. And within that declaration, we find powerful words of justice when we read, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In both secular instances like this and in sacred documents and practice, we can find simple words with great effect. When assessing how to keep Christian discipleship simple, though, and how to live into the more excellent way, the founding father of the United Methodist Church, John Wesley, gave the people called Methodists the general rules of the United Societies, better known as the three simple rules. It is important to note in looking at these three simple rules that simple can mean clear and straightforward, but it doesn't necessarily mean easy. Rule number one, do no harm. Rule number two, do good. Rule number three, attend upon all the ordinances of God. Three simple rules. For a long time, it always perplexed me as to why rules number one and number two weren't flipped around. Rule number two, to do good, seems the most basic. Rule number two has a negative in it even. Do no harm. But I feel that I've come to understand why rule number one is number one, or at least I have a theory. If you fail at rule number one and you do harm, rules number two and three become immediately difficult or even impossible. When you have harmed others by word or deed, it makes it increasingly difficult to keep things simple and to do good and to tend to the ordinances of God. I have been proud of people that I have seen recently in our world and on social media and such that amidst the hateful rhetoric and debate that people have thrown against one another in the midst of recent controversial decisions, I've been pleased to see people say that they may disagree, but they love one another, and that above issues, they seek to treat each other with kindness. Yes, showing love to one another, the law of love, is the key to keeping things simple and doing no harm. Rule number two, doing good, simple, broad, can be challenging. When we do good, we are finding ways to care for our neighbor and our community. We do good when we are like our church's middle schoolers that were on this past week's middle school mission trip and all the youth that participated in the previous week's youth mission week. We do good when we commit to caring for our corner of the world as simple as that. And rule number three, attending to the ordinances of God. By this, it is said that John Wesley meant public worship of God, 
the ministry of the word, either read or expounded, the supper of the Lord, family and private prayer, and searching the scriptures and fasting. By being here in worship this day, you are attending to the ordinances of God. So, well done, everyone. Good job. Almost all of the commitments that we remind ourselves of when new members like the Raggios join, prayers, presents, gifts, service, and witness, can be chalked up one way or another to attending to the ordinances of God. And perhaps my favorite way of keeping things simple and attending to the ordinances of God is with a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice as we taste and see that God is good and that even in the complexities of this world, we can keep things simple by focusing on doing no harm, doing good, and attending to the ordinances of God. So, as we all remember that God's simple grace is present among us, may we be reminded that that grace is available to all no matter if they are an enemy general, a young Israelite girl whose land was conquered, an Israelite king, or a prophet, or any one of us. Just as Naaman went to the river, may we now come to the table. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.